Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois. You'll hear from my co-hosts, Sean Degenhart and John Redling Schaefer throughout the show. Well, we're looking back at 2022 and what a year it was. We had so many wonderful guests on the show. You're going to hear from each and every one of them. And then following that segment, we will bring you our less than stellar moments, our bloopers from this past year. Wherever you're listening to us, please like and subscribe Feel free to share it on your social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. If you could take a few moments and rate and review us so more people find the show, that would be wonderful as well. And now it's time to hear from all of our guests from this past year. We're excited to introduce our first guest of the year. He's a Disney historian and author. You've seen him in various Disney documentaries. Bill Cotter joins us. Welcome, Bill. Hi, nice to see you guys. I had uh, uh, gotten into Disney at the studio in a kind of a strange way. I had been working at Cape Kennedy doing a missile launch, and there was a safety hold on our blockhouse. They didn't know if our new bigger missile would blow up the blockhouse or not. So everybody else went over to Disney World to go play golf at the two golf courses at the time. And I'm not a big golfer, so I went over just for the, you know, kill the day. And I walked into the theme park, and it was just like being back at the 64 World's Fair. There was the Carousel of Progress and Mr. Lincoln, monorails going by, skyways and everything. So I literally went out, bought a tie at one of the gift shops, went over to the employment office, what's called the casting office, and I wanted to get a job programming the uh, audio animatronic figures, you know, the Lincolns, the, uh, you know, father figures from the carousel. And I looked at my background. So we got all this computer security background working for the, the Navy. We'd like to have somebody do that. So I, uh, I didn't want to do that. And they said, well, we'll make you a deal. If we hire you and you don't like it after a year, we'll give you a job and what you want to do. So I hired on in Florida and then immediately quit my job, told my girlfriend I'm moving to Florida. And then Disney said, oh, guess what? Jobs changes in California. So next thing I know, I'm out in California working at the studio. It was a real, real surprise way to get in. It was really a wonderful time to be there. Uh, it, to put things in perspective, my first week, I show up out here in California. My boss-to-be is still back in uh, in Florida. And I called him up and said, what do you want me to do out here? I don't know anything about any of this stuff, right? And he says, so just go around and get to know people. So I go off and walking. This is no joke. My first day, I go walking out at lunchtime and I'll go around a building. And there's the sets from Zorro still standing on the back wow. lot. I mean, it was just wow. My original office was in the uh, what was called the Shorts building, was moved over from the old Hyperion studio. I was sitting there, uh, you know, trying to figure out things. And I hear a noise coming down the hall. It was Jimmy McDonald teaching Wayne Alwyn how to be the voice of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> You know, so it was uh, two doors down for me. Uh, they were shooting the movie Peace Dragon, and it's a long story. I won't go into all today, but I, I happened to walk down, meet Shelley Winters, and next thing you know, I'm sitting at the end of every day. Shelley would come in with a bottle, said, "Come on down, let's talk," because she didn't want to sit in traffic. And I'm 24 years old, sitting in a movie studio, knocking down drinks with Shelley Winters. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it, was, it was heaven. What were you doing at that time? What was your role? 
My role was to set up the company's initial computer security. Uh, I was hired with a mandate that nobody steals from the company using the computer and nobody gets hurt on one of our rides through a computer. So you go from that corporate world and you end up becoming a researcher and an author. Yeah, it really had its genesis back in my days when I was at Disney. Uh, we had this wonderful program where you could take home a feature film and three cartoons. They'd loan you a projector and a screen. And uh, the only limiting factor was they only had, I think, four projectors it would loan. Well, I went off and bought my own projector, and I just started watching everything in sight. Uh, you know, let me start chronology. I'll start with Snow White. I'll work my way up. And I figured, oh, if I, we had an employee club here at the studio to screen the old product, we could have, uh, you know, a way to see it. So I hadn't seen some of the stuff in years, and I would arrange, we'd go to the studio theater, and we'd uh, screen some of the things. But what I did to try to make it more interesting was I would invite the people who made those old shows to come back and talk. So I would go into the archives, I would write notes, and I'd come out and say, uh, here's what we're going to see tonight, and, and here's the uh, background of the person that's going to be talking. And then we do a Q&A up on the stage. So I had put all these notes together, been doing all these interviews, and I went over to work at uh, Warner Brothers, and Disney started calling me on things. Do you remember what show it was we did so-and-such in? Uh, what was the show that we flew the jetpack around the castle in? Do you remember which show we did this and that? So I, I started thinking, gee, maybe there is a, a book in this. You know, maybe I'm not the only guy that's interested in this stuff. We're happy to introduce our guest this week. He's a former character artist at the Disney Studios, where he worked on features such as The Lion King, Fantasia 2000, Treasure Planet, Home on the Range, and The Princess and the Frog. Here to share his story with us this week is Tao Nguyen. Welcome, Tao. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Getting into Disney, um, the studios uh, for feature animation for as an animator, That's it's, it's very, very, very competitive, and it's very hard to get into. You got to be very, very good. Um, and I'm very blessed to, to get in there, you know. I mean, I worked hard for it. It took me seven years. Seven years for me to, to fulfill my dream of uh, making it into the studios. Um, so from CalArts, um, that kind of helped me because it gave my portfolio, it gave my thinking, my training. And um, I said, you know what? I know a lot of uh, former Disney artists or animators from Disney are working I mean, they went to CalArts and um, they got the training from CalArts. So I'm like, I know I'm like in the right direction, so, but I got to work hard for it. And so I, I applied there um, for Disney Studios, taking the test uh, after my second year at college at CalArts. And it was a cleanup job, um, a cleanup animated job. And that's not what CalArts trains you to be. They train you to be the highest. They train you to be train you to be animators, like storyboard artists and and higher development and directors and and for entry level as a, a cleanup animator, they didn't train us that. So but um I tried for it. I didn't make it. Of course, you know, you always crush. But uh so I tried to do other things uh throughout waiting because you can't you can't just take the test and and you fail and then you try to take it again there's a time period where you can take it again they gotta invite you to take it um submitting your portfolio so um so that's what i did i took um night classes besides um i worked at odd jobs here and there and then um i took um night 
um, art drawing classes and and I connected and I met with other fellow um, employees of Disney who are animators and I try to um, get into the head I try to um, research and 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 see where my portfolio is with them and they give me tips and advice and I kept going and going you know keep so I am um, I ate I slept and I dreamt animation basically and it takes a lot of dedication it takes a lot of ambition and you just got to work really hard for it if you really want it you got to you know really sacrifice i drew i drew i drew and i you know try to do stuff that was close to disney related so um and then and, and it all paid off in the end i'm john alois joined by sean Dagenhart. hello and john redling schaefer hello hello and special guest host this week, the full-time host of Coffee with Kenobi, Mr. Dan Zaire is back with us. Welcome, Dan. Hello, gentlemen. Nice to be with you virtually in the studio. I got to say, the uh, the looks the two your two co-hosts are making at each other while you're talking are quite entertaining. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. No, pulling, no, no. Don't be ratting us out pulling here. Pulling the right? curtain back. <laughs> all right. On to our main topic. And Dan, you just got off the Halcyon, and you got to spend three days and two nights there. Gentlemen, it was like winning the Disney lottery. It was like <laughs> winning the Disney lottery. We woke up. We walked over to the contemporary or to the Grand, Grand Floridian Convention area. I signed in, did some stuff for them, and then uh, they put us on the bus, and we went over there. I think there were forty media members throughout the entire world who were invited. People from. There were maybe three stars podcasts. There was a bunch of YouTube channels. There were some TikTokers. Uh, there was CNN, Good Morning America. You know, just you know, New York Times, USA Today. Actually, Eckstein was there. Spent a lot of time with her. Now, you know, Dan, was, I want to say was, that you could have invited John and me at least <laughs> as your other two sons, <laughs> yeah. since they were unavailable. That's true. So and next as much time, as I love you both, just I keep like that in mind. More. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. No problem. So so then we uh, noted you're you're not the first person to extend that gracious offer to me either. So we we got over there and uh, I mean for two nights in three days you were you were you were living it's like this it's like a combination of vegas for families which is completely family friendly a murder mystery and an escape room all in one you've got your phone which is your data pad which is the play disney app and throughout the experience you're sent messages where you can do missions you can align with the first order you know if you want to turn to the dark side you can align with the resistance. You can be, learn the ways of a Jedi, or you can become a smuggler. Whatever you pick, you've got missions that are happening throughout the entire experience that affect what actually happens. This, gentlemen, is the immersion we were promised in Galaxy's Edge, but never fully came to fruition. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, it really, truly is because the three of us had the best time. We're collaborating. We're doing these missions. We're having great food. We're playing Sabacc in the, in the Sublight Lounge, which is uh, incredible fun. There's lightsaber training. Uh, there's, a, there's a climate simulator, which is basically a glorified Zen outdoor garden where they say you're, we're simulating what it's like to be on Batu when you're really just in Orlando. But if you want that sunshine, you've got it there. You spend half the day, one of the days, the second day in the studios and you get to wear a special pin, uh, this pin right here, on your shirt. And when the, when the cast members see that, in, in addition to your magic band, which of course has all your stuff on it, 
Um, they treat you differently. They talk to you differently about different things. Uh, when you go on Smuggler's Run, Hondo Onaka says different things to you and asks you to help him with a mission. Uh, they've got unlimited Katsaka's kettle for you to snack on throughout the thing. All the blue and green milk you could want is on tap alongside, you know, any other kinds of stuff. Uh, there's entertainment with a singer. She's a, she is, her name is Gaia. She, if you're familiar with Hera, uh, from Star Wars Rebels, that that's the same species that, that she is from. Uh, uh, and then gosh, um, the hours you don't, you don't see the sun unless you go outside or go into the climate center. Uh, you don't really have a clock besides the one on you, on you. So you have no concept of what day it is, even though it's two nights and three days, each day feels like a week. And that's not a bad thing. There, you there's just a lot going on. It's, it's very overwhelming. It's not, and I repeat, not relaxing when you go, if you decide to go, don't expect to feel rested because I still do not feel rested. No, I had to cover a lot of stuff and still doing a lot of other things. But it's it's unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And I can truly tell you, I know Disney hosts me, but I cannot wait to go again. And I am. In the summer of 2023, me and MEI and Mouse Fan Travel with Becky Mencken, we're going as a big coffee with Kenobi Group, summer of 2023, on the Halcyon. <laughs> Well, we have a very special guest this week, and we get to hear the sounds of Disneyland. He's joining us from right next to the Matterhorn. Sean, take it away. Well, we are delighted to have with us um, educator, writer, speaker, dean of a college. What else have you done, Jeff? We, we've got Jeff Barnes <laughs> with us today. Uh, you might know him best as the author of The Wisdom of Walt, Leadership Lessons from the Happiest Place on Earth. Jeff, welcome to the Hyperion Hub. Well, thank you, Sean. Part of my story is... The day after I gave the very first lecture in my dream course, The History of Disneyland, the very next day was when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And they wanted to operate immediately and told me because of the invasiveness of the surgery, I was going to be out of work for two months. And I knew instantly that meant the class I had been wanting to teach for so very long, that class would be canceled. And I looked the neurosurgeon in the eye and I said, sorry, doc, not going to happen. And he wanted to know, well, what are you doing that's so important that you're willing to risk your life and put off brain surgery? And I said, well, I'm a doctor too. I have class. And he had no idea what class I could possibly be teaching that was more important than brain surgery. And it was then that I realized more than an idea, a crazy thought, or even more than a dream, this wisdom of Walt thing had become a mission, a message, a passion, one for which I was willing to risk my life because I recognized this was an opportunity to not just teach my students, but to actually serve as an example for my students. Because if I truly was going to have this class be not just about taking students to Disneyland, put them on a roller coaster and give them an easy yay. But if it really was about risk, adversity and overcoming obstacles, then this could be the summer to serve as that example. And so 2014 was really all about that. And guess what? I didn't die. We had the surgery on July 24th and I went back to the university two months following and if it weren't for the surgery getting sick that's that's how the book came about 
because I'd had the book idea way longer than I had the class idea. And I went from who am I to write a book? I don't know how to write a book. I don't know how to sell a book, market a book, publish a book, you name it, to writing the first book, The Wisdom of Walt, in 142 days. I, I think I'm haunted by what our world would look like if Walt doesn't get up off that bench. You know, what would Anaheim look like? What would Orlando look like? What would our world look like if he doesn't believe in his idea, despite the fact that Lily didn't want to get into the amusement park business, despite the fact that Roy says we're not building an amusement park. You know, Walt was asked, why do you want to get into the amusement park business over and over and over again? And he has one answer. I want one. And that's it. I want one. And he didn't need to do it. He has Mickey, right? He's got Snow White. He's got live action movies. And I believe, you know, he's made his debt in the universe. And yet I believe his greatest legacy is the parks. I love Mickey. Don't get me wrong. And I think the movies are great. But it's the parks at the end of the day that leave us with the legacy that we love so very, very, very much. And for whatever reason, I'm haunted by this idea of what if he doesn't get up off that park bench? What if he doesn't believe in his idea and in himself enough to overcome the endless doubters who questioned whether he should ever bother. And I, I, I just believe that, you know, there's going to be someone somewhere in an audience someday who, who's going to hear that message and is going to change their world and potentially maybe at some point change our world because it, it's, it's not money that's the currency of the 21st century, it's ideas. And, and Walt had one, and wow, right? I mean, we needed him in 1955 because we needed Disneyland. And we still live in an age where we need people, we need their ideas, but we need to get up off of our benches and start making things happen. And you didn't let brain surgery stop you from sharing those stories and your story. So that's equally as powerful to me. Right. And I think, and I think in our current world and in our current condition, it's a message that resonates and we're having to be resilient coming out of COVID. And, and you may or may not know this, but, you know, Walt hated sequels. He never wanted to repeat himself. I, I had a second brain tumor in 2020 in the middle of COVID. And, you know, I was diagnosed on January 17th and had, you know, a second surgery on, you know, June 4th. And it was the same two-month recovery. Now, fortunately, you know, if you're ever going to take two months off from speaking, the summer of 2020 was a great time to do it because nobody was going anywhere and nobody was speaking to anyone. But at the same time, you know, what, do you, you know, what are you going to do? 
you know, it, it is what it is. So, um, you know, Walt, you know, Walt, Walt had to deal with the bankruptcy in, Can in Kansas City. He had to deal with the loss of Oswald. He had to deal with the strike. He had to deal with World War II. Um, it's, it's the story of everybody's life at some point. And, you know, we love Disney, but what a lot of people don't realize is, and, and I love Lily's quote, he was never beaten at anything. And once people realize that, then maybe, just maybe, it's the, the hope and the inspiration and the momentum that somebody might need to get up tomorrow morning and get them through another day. We're excited to talk with our next guest. He is an avid Disney cell animation art collector. He's currently the curator of a Disney art exhibit at the Peoria Riverfront Museum in Peoria, Illinois, and is helping to organize an upcoming Disney film festival there. A two-time guest on the Hyperion Hub. Welcome back, Steve Spain. Welcome, Steve. Oh, thank you. Hi, guys. <laughs> How did it all get started? I... I seem normal otherwise. <laughs> uh, it all started with a mouse, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I'd always been interested in Disney, like a lot of folks my age group, baby boom generation. I grew up with the original Mickey Mouse Club uh, after school. Uh, Sunday evenings, Uncle Walt would come into our homes and the uh, wonderful world of Disney, wonderful world of color. So I was interested in Disney, but I think I got interested in the animation when I was a senior I was lucky enough to get a job as an apprentice projectionist, and uh, I was a kind of a fill-in guy and would work different theaters around town. It seems like I'd always end up at uh, a theater where they were showing a, a, a Disney film, and I would watch them over and over, and I, I, I thought, gee, this is really beautiful work. It was much more different than the Saturday cartoons that I saw on, on TV, uh, more lavish, more meticulous. And so I, I, I kind of paid attention to the films, paid attention to the credits at the end of these films. Uh, I noticed the same names would keep reappearing and, you know, occurred to me that, you know, this is going to be uh, uh, the core team of, of, of people that Walt had assembled to make these great films. And then fast forward about 10 years after that, I'm in the Peoria Public Library. I'm, I'm looking at a, for a book about Edward Hopper, the artist. And I'm in the art section and someone had left out a big coffee table book on one of the reading tables. They just left it there. It was uh, Treasures of Disney Animation Art by John Canemaker. And I caught my attention. I, I picked it up and looked through. And I saw this fabulous art and I didn't know how the process worked, but I, I took the book and checked it out and uh, renewed it a few times. And in the back of that book, there was a little tiny section and it said, Sources for Original Disney Art. I thought, whoa, is that possible? I thought, you know, Disney would have all of that material if it still existed. But there was two dealers, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and I called them both up, and we hit it off, and uh, I flew out to, to both places to check out their collections. And the original piece I bought was Gus the Mouse from Cinderella. Um, that was the very first piece of animation art, animation cell. 
we are thrilled to welcome to the Hyperion Hub a guy that I've known actually for the last nine years. Um, he has written music for Fox Sports, PBS, National Geographic, Facebook, IBM, and has recently, in the past few years, been doing some projects for Disney. So Joshua Spack, welcome to the Hyperion Hub. Thank you so much, Hyperion Hub. This is a privilege and an honor. When, when I started getting into, not just now sequencing on a keyboard, but you know, buying Logic for the first time and learning notation software, really, it was GarageBand even. Um, and I remember forgetting to eat. Um, <laughs> and my, <laughs> I remember forgetting to, to get up and go relieve my bladder. <laughs> it's like hours <laughs> would go by and I am just like not moving because I am just trying to figure this thing out or I've got these ideas of lines and, and counter lines and melodies. And now all of a sudden you have an orchestra that you can play and you can. Um, and again, I was always a classical, classically trained musician, but sampling right around like 05, 06 really just started growing exponentially in terms of its quality and accessibility. And that just unleashed the world of composition for me. So no longer was it just a line played by the pinky. It could be, this is what I want the French horns to do. And no longer was it just the left hand playing octaves. It, it was like, this is the double bass and the celli, and we've got this in interwoven you know, viola line. That just blew my mind because it was so realistic. Uh, it, it began to become so realistic and we've grown a lot since then. Never pass up the opportunity to help someone who who is asking you for help because that has happened countless times for me and don't even think of it as a favor don't even think of it as paying back that's that it's just literally an appreciation for that's how it works no one is where they are unless it was for a referral or a recommendation i mean whether you're a nurse or a county clerk. I mean, it, there is usually some personal history involved <laughs> for why you are where you are. So of course you help someone out. If someone needs a phone call or an email or your time, you just do it because I have appreciated the investment and the time and the intention that all of these folks have given me and continue to give me to this day. Um, I was just in Orlando on Friday meeting with another uh, music producer of um, a number of the parks and a number of the shows in the parks. I had never met her before, but just again, she's just pouring into me like free wisdom, you know, <laughs> free help. Um, so just do that. Number one. The second thing is, is that you have to view yourself as a brand and as a business. And, and I wish I would have understood this a lot sooner. And I think I tended to look at music, how we look at the Olympics or how we look at competitive sports or for me, competitive music, which is like piano competitions. Like, well, if you're the best, you're going to get the best gigs, right? So if you just run faster, you win the gold medal, or if you just play longer or faster and more complicated songs, you, you win. And that's just not how the music industry works. Um, even on the classical side, I, I'm begin I've understood that now. There, there, again, there's always some backstory. There's always someone helping you out. And sometimes 
actually most of the time, not the person with the most talent, but the person with <laughs> the best, most positive disposition, maybe connections. Uh, it's that serendipitous moment of running into someone that that's inevitably a part of the story for everyone. But you do have to put yourself in the path of serendipity, as I call it. Like you, you just can't sit at the piano here and write great music if you're not going to maybe a trade show or a conference or if you're not um, cold calling with emails, just saying this is something I've worked on. If you even write me one sentence back and you tell me you hate it, I would appreciate that. Um, you have to be in the flow so that people can intersect with you eventually. Um, and that doesn't mean you need to move. That's especially in this day and age, but you do have to do things that are uncomfortable. Um, and that's, I was reading a book recently, you know, it's been out for over 10 years, the four hour work week. Mm -hmm. uh, and he just talks a lot about, getting over this stage fright mentality, forcing himself to, to do cold calling with emails or to do something every day that uh, made him feel uncomfortable. And I think to the degree that you're willing to absorb awkwardness, the more successful you'll be. Um, however, you can't neglect the craft. You've got to put in the times, you've got to have the, the chops, but that will get buried Unless at some point, um, every student, every amateur, pro professional amateur needs to think, okay, what do I do now strategically to make my voice heard? Um, and guess what? You've got to get comfortable with being told no over and over and over and over again. One yes can set you up for success, right? And that's what we want. So we, we think we, we draft an email or we work on a piece and we're, we're not sure if we should send it out or publish it to, to, or release it on Spotify or on our website or if should I do that recital or that live performance on Zoom I've been talking about. And we sit on it and we agonize. And here's the thing, you don't learn how to correct something unless you can see how it was inefficient and, and how you represented it. So the only way to learn is to do something and for it to probably not be as good as you wanted it to be, but then to absorb that, to reiterate and to do it again and to do it again and to do it again. And that's the model I've picked up from uh, like software development, right? You, nobody sits there and agonizes over weeks and months and years about do I press publish? Like they get it out and then, oh, look, Tomorrow we have an update coming out <laughs> that, you know, for Logic or Sibelius or, or Pro Tools or Mac. Um, and that is such a good principle, I think, for artists um, to understand is you have to iterate. And to the degree that you're willing to iterate and fail and mess up and be told no and to embarrass yourself, that will directly translate into the you intersecting with these successful opportunities. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. And this week we are on location at the Peoria Riverfront Museum in Peoria, Illinois. We're here at the Museum for the Art of Disney Film Festival. We're about to see Snow White, Pinocchio, and Cinderella on the big screen. 
And we're joined by a very special guest this week, historian and author and host for our weekend, Mr. J.B. Kaufman is joining us. Hello, J.B. Good morning. It's nice to be here. You've written eight books, correct, dedicated to the history of Disney, including The Fairest One of All and Pinocchio and the making of the Disney epic. You know, I don't think we truly appreciate when we're young, well, I know we don't, the hard work that goes into an animated feature. The fact that they're drawing, you know, 24 frames per second. Um, When you were finally able to look at these pieces up close in the archives and throughout the studio, was it overwhelming? Tell me, what were those feelings like, just seeing these images in person? Well, you've, you've pretty well touched on it already. It's, it is, especially if you have a primal connection like that, it's, it is pretty overwhelming to look at the actual objects for the first time, or, or, or for the 50th time, and, uh, and, and realize that, these were, that this was the medium by which this miracle happened. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty awe-inspiring, and, uh, and you gain a whole new level of respect for the artists who made these films. Have there been any surprises when you're down in the archives? Something that maybe wasn't featured in the film or something you were unaware of? Oh, there's, there's been no end of surprises. Um, I, th- I think uh, there's a special fascination in discovering sequences or actions or something that were planned for the film and then not used because you know you could play what if all day you know and speculate about how the film would have been different if a certain uh, uh, sequence had been uh, executed as planned Um, because in many cases it would have completely transformed the whole nature of the film Uh, you may know that in Snow White for example when Snow White sings, Someday My Prince Will Come. Uh, at one time, there was a plan that uh, she would start singing the song and you would see a fantasy sequence in which she was in a cloudscape, wandering through uh, these, these clouds with stars all around her like flowers. <clears throat> and they had a really elaborate sequence planned. And ultimately, uh, they, they decided to abandon that because they were already going so far beyond anything that had ever been uh, accomplished in animation that adding that sequence onto all of that would have been maybe biting off a little too much. And of course, in the, in the finished film, it's, it's, it's wonderful as it is. She sings the song and you see the dwarfs listening and it's, you know, you, you maintain the fantasy in that location. Um, but it's, it's fascinating sometimes to speculate about whole, how the whole nature of the film would have been changed if that had stayed in the film. You have recently joined forces with several other Disney historians and authors and formed the Hyperion Historical Alliance. Tell us a little good bit name. about good that. Name. Yeah, good name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like that touch. Um, it's, it is a... Um, it's a pretty marvelous group, and I must say that um, my hat is off to the people who organized it, and I was not one of them, but I'm very happy to be associated with them. Um, Didier Guez is pretty much, it was pretty much his brainchild, and um, it's, the brilliant thing about it is that these are all like-minded individuals who each have somewhat different specialties, but combining all of those specialties together we can do a lot more than any of us could individually. So um, a lot of the, uh, the group's activities have centered on 
uh, locating the, in, in most cases, the descendants of Disney veterans who kept uh, artifacts and, and you know art pieces and so on from their time at the studio, and making sure that those are scanned and and historically preserved uh, for posterity. Uh, but but there have been other things too, and the part that I'm mainly involved in is is the publishing part. Uh, we've 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 started this this uh, publishing initiative that uh, that really goes beyond, I think, goes beyond what most publications have covered. We're not just skimming over the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, this is for <clears throat> this is for dedicated Disney nerds like ourselves, and uh, and so the idea is to really delve into. Uh, the details of things that might have been overlooked before, and uh, and I'm I'm kind of proud of what we've accomplished already, and some of the things that are coming. You know, the pandemic uh, has had an effect on us as well as on everybody else. So there were some projects that were already in the pipeline that have been stalled there for a while, and we're just beginning to come out of that now. And I'm really proud of some of the stuff that we've come up with. We'll look forward to telling you folks about that when it happens. So joining me now is President and CEO of the Peoria Riverfront Museum, John Morris. John, what a weekend for Disney fans, for film buffs, for people who just love Disney movies. When we first opened the museum, we opened it as a non-profit, non-commercial enterprise, but the theater itself was commercial. So we brought in major, you know, Avengers 7 or, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the latest big uh, big uh, commercial film was. Unfortunately, that required us to do something called a clean screen, which means for school groups, we couldn't do the educational film, we couldn't do a Friday night art film, we couldn't uh, bring in a documentary, we couldn't do any classic Disney films because of that commercial status. So the board of directors and I made a decision in co- consultation with our staff and uh, curators, let's go non-commercial. We Three times a year, we won't be able to show the, the biggest new Star Wars, but guess what? For the first time ever, we're showing all nine Star Wars in a row this summer at the Peoria Riverfront Museum. That's because of that switch. Let's talk about what we experienced today. What an amazing showing. Start off with Snow White, that beautiful overture kicked it off. First full-length animated feature. It was amazing seeing it on that large screen. And then JB, of course, answered some questions yeah. after each showing, and that was great, getting a little more insight. There's Wonderful. There's a 17-year-old in the crowd whose last name might be Dagenhart that asked about the water effects, the underwater effects from Pinocchio. What did you ask? And who are you? Hi, I'm Claire Dagenhart. I'm Sean's oldest, and I probably know more than he does. And we'll edit that. Out. Uh-huh. So go ahead. What did you ask? I asked him for the underwater portions of Pinocchio, whether they used a special filter over the drawings or whether they just drew them. Wavy. To have that wavy effect. Mm-hmm. What did he say? I wasn't in there for the end um, of the question. He said that they used. There was a there were a number of things that he did, or the animators did. They would put a filter in between the camera and the sketches like that just bent the mm. sketches a little bit. Well, in the live action world, in order to soften a shot, they would literally put Vaseline on the lens for some of the old live action movies. So I'm sure that they came up with some sort of filtration to create that, uh, that effect. Yeah, yeah, he said they had this panel of glass that was textured and everything, and they would slide that across oh, as they were. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so effective especially in the late 1930s. Yeah, absolutely. 
Happy to have our friend back on the show this week. He is owner of Out the Door Travel. He's a vacation planner. And of course, that includes trips to Disney. And we're going to talk all about Genie Plus and Lightning Lane on this week's show. Welcome back, David Zanola. Hello, David. Hello. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Let's talk about the benefits. What do you like about the changes with uh, Genie Plus and the extra add-on? I like having the removed stress, and I'm not just saying this as a travel planner, but I liked having the removed stress of not having to have everything locked in stone two months before I arrive. Um, Part of me liked the comfort of that, but part of me also kind of stressed out a little bit about that of what if I'm making the wrong decisions? Because again, right now, if you don't get a Slinky Dog Genie Plus Pass within five minutes of them opening, you're probably not getting one. But it was the exact same way when the booking window opened for FastPass Plus. If you weren't on when that window opened at whatever time it opened, you probably were only about 30 or 40 minutes away from not getting one for that day either. And there was no switching then. At least the system the system resets every day. And so you have another chance your next day if you want to. And so I enjoy a little bit of the spontaneity of all right, it's that morning. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to try to get. This is what I'm going to focus on and making that decision that morning based on what I've already done that trip or what the weather might be like or whatever it might be instead of two months out. All right, what are we going to do? Because this is our only shot. And that happened. For all of their flaws they may have and for all the decisions that people may take them to task for, no one can ever claim that Disney is dumb when it comes to money. Right. And so if they realize that there is a product that is not being monetized to its maximum, they will adjust. Right. Whether it's the price that comes down, whether they offer a promotion where instead of free dining, you get free Genie Plus for your family for your trip, they will find ways to adjust. I mean, again, in the grand scheme of things, we are not even six months into this. And so I don't know. I don't know that we know enough. I think we have this discussion again a year from now. That might be a totally different story. In your opinion, David, is Genie Plus worth it? So that's a good question because it's probably the most common question I get asked by my clients. And the honest answer is that depends on how your family likes to vacation. I equate that to walking onto a big car lot at a dealership and saying, I would like to drive away in a vehicle and expecting them to know what you want and just hand you the keys how each of the three of you may vacation and what's important to you out of your vacation based on when you're going, how busy it's going to be, which parks you're visiting, what attractions are important to you. That is something that a travel planner can kind of help you guide. And so unfortunately, as much as we like that to be the easy way out, there is not an all for one answer of it's worth it for everybody or it's not worth it for everybody, at least not at this stage in the game. I am an owner of a travel agency called Out the Door Travel, and my wife Leah and I actually work together to help plan people's vacations, not just to Disney, but to anywhere. Uh, But the thing about Disney is as being content experts in the area, we help plan all of these little ins and outs and help guide people. And we don't charge an extra penny at all. Disney basically pays us to bring them uh, your business. You don't have to pay us. So you get us to guide you through the Genie Plus system. You get us to guide you through all of these tips and tricks, how to use it, what not to do. And those are things, again, that we have from experience being able, um, from, from our experience going. And I always like to say, especially if you have listeners that say, I don't need that travel help. I go to Disney all the time. We 
actually offer special booking incentives to those that say, I go all the time. I don't want your help planning my trip, but do I get any little extra perks for bringing you my business? Yes, we absolutely do give something extra to those that want to bring us their trips and uh, give a frequent flyer discount, if you'll call it that, to be able to still support our small business, but also then be able to make sure that those guests get something extra. Uh, They can reach me at David at outthedoortravel.com. That's shortened in the email, David at otdtravel.com. Well, we are thrilled to have with us as a guest, our first uh, Grammy-nominated guest. Um, he is a writer, producer, um, written books for um, the Disney Parks, Disney Corporate, Warner Brothers, Universal Cartoon Network, Disney Records, Sony, Album Liner Notes, you name it. He has probably written it. And especially my favorite part was the on-hold copy when you're at the parks, when you're on the phone. Uh, Please make welcome Greg Airbar. Greg, welcome to the Hyperion Hub. Thank you very much for having me here. I got into Disney um, through the resorts area. And I, what I was doing at first was I was, I was, I started finding freelance work writing, but to get in, I I, uh, took a job on the phones in the reservation. So it's funny because I was in reservations and then I ended up writing the recording for over 10 years that's played on that system. And I would call up reservations and say, could you put me on hold so I can listen to the recording? But it was a great, great job. Once again, you know, never say, oh, this job is beneath me or uh, what a waste of time or why should I do this? What a great job. What was cool about the Disney reservation thing is all that information was necessary because the people on the phones had to have access to it. Ooh, that means I have access to it. That means I can find out about absolutely all kinds of cool stuff. So when a new hotel opens, I find out all about how many rooms it has. Blah, blah, blah. You know, when a new attraction opens, we have to give this information. So within a couple of years, I was writing for them. Now, they didn't give you the title of writer. They called it information processor. So I said, well, not really a processor. That's and they said, well, okay, we'll change it to specialist. And then we did a newsletter, and I turned it into a comedy newsletter. I said, these people have a tense job. Let's give them something funny, you know, and, and things like that. So we, we tried to keep it light. And then I did a video. Um, uh, this was actually something we did on the outside of our, of our hours, because they said, you could only do this outside your hours. Um, we made a training video, but I turned it into a half-hour sitcom. Because when the Caribbean Beach Resort opened, it was the first, uh, it was originally a value resort. It, it's now considered a moderate. But it was the very first resort that did not have all of the amenities that people normally expected from a Disney resort. You didn't have a monorail. You didn't have, at the time, there was no, nothing but pizza. Didn't have full room service. Uh, the rooms were not ornate at first. They've gotten much more. There was not a table service restaurant. There is now. Uh, there, it, It's changed. But at first, it was very no frills. So they needed a, a, a way to, to, for people to be able to import that to the callers. So I said, well, let's make it a happy Donna Reed kind of family and with their cranky aunt. And through her, and she's hard of hearing, so through her, we can repeat all of the important points. And we had commercials and we had a theme song 
and and uh, and we actually reenacted the whole Donna Reed show opening in my sister's living room with the going down the stairs <laughs> and smiling at each other. And we shot this. We shot at the hotel at two in the morning, so there wouldn't be guests there. And I mean, it was it was like an Ed Wood movie. You know, we actually ran out onto onto I four, um, and because we had no permit, you know, the, the we had a crew of like two guys. They went onto the overpass to shoot us driving underneath the overpass. You get this great aerial shot of us driving into the exit. I mean, it was it was a blast. But this, so this film was a lot, so this film was really turned out, it was a video, but what was so gratifying, now this is while I'm a reservation guy and, and doing the information, so I'm always having these crazy things. So I start sending this thing around, I actually sent one to Dave Smith, and he says, oh, we put a number on it, it's in our archives. I'm like, oh, I have my videos in the archives, wow. You know, you do these little things. I was writing for, you, you were, when you're a Disney cast member, and I got this verified by legal. So you can freelance within the company. And I, I went to legal and asked, you know, who do I talk to? And you could freelance as long as whatever you're doing is not in direct competition. So it's like, well, so you don't go to another resort company and do work for them. You know, you don't go to Universal Park and do, you know, Disney. You wouldn't do that. It would be wrong. So, so if you do it within Disney, Imagineers write books. You know, animators write books, that kind of thing. So what the freelancing I was doing was for the marketing department. And that's how I got to know some of the people in the marketing department. And I also, a place called Resort Design, which later became Attractions Merchandise. I wrote a lot of merchandise. I was writing uh, copy for small ads. I wrote something called the Chippendale Adventure Club for Discovery Island before that closed. And I wrote all kinds of little little things because they did small things that marketing didn't really have time for anymore. Greg, one of my favorite books and one of the first books on Disney history that I purchased was Mouse Tracks, the story of Walt Disney Records. Now, you mentioned growing up with these records and things like that. So what a dream it must have been to go back and research all this. I mean, that book is a goldmine of information. It was a, it was a long process. It took about four years to write the book. It was a, a thrill. It was a thrill for a lot of reasons. One is that we were able to hone in on something that no one talked about. And you've got Disney, and, and even now, and it kind of surprises me um, because... And it, it makes me happy that there was, I see a lot of people on social media who who... I can tell, and sometimes they even acknowledge where they got their knowledge from. That's fine. They got it from the book. That's fine. You know, I want this information to go on. Having a quality book was a big thrill. Having a book that we could sell in the parks was pretty exciting. Hi, my name is Dr. Christopher Tremblay. I teach a class on the life of Walt Disney called Walt's Pilgrimage. It's offered through Western Michigan University, and we are currently on day one of our eight-day travels of traveling the life of Walt Disney. Dr. Christopher Tremblay's on a familiar trip, one he's taken many times. He's traveling throughout the country with his students, retracing the footsteps of Walt Disney. It's part of a course he created for the Study in the States program at Western Michigan University. The course is called Walt's Pilgrimage. I caught up with Dr. Tremblay at a restaurant in Normal, Illinois. As he and his students, he calls Mouseketeers, 
were passing through town. It's interesting thinking back to when, when I pitched this course um, because I was in a unique situation in that uh, these courses historically had always been taught by faculty at the university and I was an administrator. Uh, but I was a graduate of the Honors College, and so I had a conversation with the dean, like, would you even entertain a proposal from somebody who's a non-traditional, you know, uh, person? And she said, yeah, absolutely, write it up. So I wrote it up, and I think she was very intrigued, right, because of the topic of Walt Disney and his impact on life. And then it got approved, and then I was like, oh, gosh, I have to write the curriculum. I've got to plan the journey, and that's what I think teaching this class you know, there's a lot of work involved because it is the curriculum and the assignments and the readings, but it's also, you, you're almost like a travel agent planning the experiences and complementing the readings, you know, that we do. This trip for me is an opportunity to educate uh, the next generation about the life of Walt Disney. Most of them are familiar with the Disney brand, the Disney company, the Disney movies and theme parks, but they don't necessarily know much about Walt. And I think it's important for people to understand his humble beginnings beginnings, his challenges, uh, and then his ultimate success. Anthony Helms is an assistant dean at the university and understands the appeal of the Study in the States program. This is the best thing we do as a college. Uh, this started about 10 years ago. Um, it's really meant to get the students outside the classroom to learn stuff that they can learn just as easy inside a classroom, but they'll forget about right after, right? Um, so these students get to engage in site-based experiential learning out in the real world where the hands get dirty. And it's just, it's wonderful to see those light bulbs click on. Um, this trip in specific, you know, specifically is uh, magic happens, right? Like, like there, are, there are things that occur on this course that don't make sense, right, in, in reality. And uh, Christopher's very convinced this wall is magic. I have nothing to push back on for that. And so uh, for this course, it's really that. I mean, all these dozens of moments, even in the first three days where I'm going to be with them, there's dozens of moments where something just clicks and it, it allows them to see the beauty behind the madness. There are all types of students who participate in this course. Majors range from film and TV to aviation. Grace Philippi is a senior studying biomedical sciences and minoring in chemistry and American Sign Language. She hopes to go to medical school next year and become a pediatric heart surgeon. She learned about the course when she met Dr. Tremblay. I first visited Western in about 2018 when I was a junior in high school. Um, and then I came back in April of 2019 to pick my classes. Um, and it was the same day that Dr. Trembley was doing his kickoff meeting for Walt's pilgrimage in 2019. So I walked into the Honors College and Dr. Trembley walked out of the room that they were doing the um, kickoff meeting in and introduced himself to me and my mom. And immediately I wanted to take the course. I was like, this is amazing. I met this professor. He was super nice. He's full of life. Um, and I just thought it was such an amazing concept. As Dr. Tremblay mentioned earlier, it's common for the students to know all about the films and the theme parks, but not have much knowledge about Walt himself or his rags to riches story. The more she learns about the obstacles he overcame and closed doors he opened, the more Grace relates and is inspired. Knowing that someone so prominent in everyone's life now um, kind of started from nothing and built quite literally everything from nothing um, is super inspirational. Going into the medical field is something that is very hard and being a female in the male-dominated field especially, um, I have been told that I couldn't do it many times already. Um, I have failed many times already, but knowing that there's someone out there that in the past 
has built something from nothing is really inspirational to me. Another student inspired is junior Brian Hagenbarth. He's studying entrepreneurship and business management. Like a lot of families, Walt grew up fairly poor. And I, I mean, his dad tried to be a hard worker and his dad definitely instilled hardworking um, attitudes in, in Walt and his um, brothers and sister. But I think that kind that drive is what led him to want to be better and better and to cre create better and better films and animations and as he expanded um, it it kind of was a rolling effect and he wanted his work to be premier quality and even though he didn't have the funds at the time as he grew his business it kind of grew into him being more and more of an entrepreneur in a sense and while some of his businesses failed and I think that's where a lot of the learning came in even though they failed, that's kind of what led him to know what to produce in the future, how to run a business in the future. You know, it's almost a hundred years later, but I think that that, that spirit, right, that, that, that entrepreneurship spirit of owning your idea and, uh, you know, watering it and, and, and watching it grow, that's got to be inspiring too. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think one thing that was really inspiring was that he almost every single time was adamant about not selling out any of his films. He, he would form contracts, but when it came to his own animations or his business's animations, he didn't want to sell out to another company. He didn't want to be bought out. And so I think that's part of what was inspiring because he could have taken the easy route. He could have sold out. He could have just worked for another company for a steady pay. And he took the risk. And a lot of the times it or in his early life it didn't work out but towards the end of his life it definitely worked out and I find that really very awesome to learn. If this sounds like a dream trip, Disney fans not enrolled can still take it on their own. Dr. Tremblay has written a guidebook called Walt's Pilgrimage, A Journey in the Life of Walter Elias Disney. Call it a sequel to the university course as it features more than 275 sites spanning over 80 cities in 25 states, Canada, and Mexico. His career has spanned six decades for the Disney company. He was an animator who's worked on so many classics, and they include The Rescuers, The Fox and the Hound, The Black Cauldron, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Toy Story, Dinosaur, The Princess and the Frog, among others. Welcome to the Hyperion Hub, Randy Cartwright. Thank you so much, Randy, for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I was working there at Disneyland, and uh, one of the supervisors came up to me and said, your mom's on the phone. She says it's an emergency. Oh, gosh. And I was taking her. I had to take my head off, run back to there <laughs> to the, uh, and uh, grab the phone. What's the, what's the matter? And she said, the Disney studio just called. They want to talk to you. What? Wow. <laughs> and I had been working on a portfolio of drawings, but I, I didn't think it was ready to, you know, to really take in. I was hoping to go there at some time. And so uh, I called up and I talked with Don Duckwall. That was his name. He was the head of animation production at the time. He said one of uh, the artists there saw my film in a film festival student film festival and was asking if I had a portfolio I could bring in. They'd like to talk to me. So holy cow, <laughs> I had I'd hoped to go and, you know, apply at Disney, but they contacted me first. But so I, I uh, brought my portfolio in and um, 
showed it to Eric Larson, who was one of uh, Disney's nine old men. He was the head of the training program there. And he went through it and he said, okay, you're not really ready for us yet. What you need to do is work on this. He, he put my drawings down, put a sheet of paper over, he'd draw over mine. You need to work on this and do a little bit more of that. And that gave me a lot of notes. When you get some more of these things, bring them back. So I did, and I worked uh, uh, more my portfolio, brought it back, and he looked at it and said, okay, you're getting better now. Look at this. Do this and this and this, this. He would give me more lessons. I went back, did another one, took it back. He says, okay, now, this, 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 this. And uh, it w took me actually seven portfolios <laughs> going wow. back and forth for over a year. And, and I was almost ready to give up, but he told me, no, you're almost there. Bring it. Keep working. Keep working. So you and were working, but you were working for the studio at this time? No, no. I was working at Disneyland at okay, the time. Okay. So they were training you to get a position at but Disney, at the Disney studio. It was just, yeah, it was just Eric Larson had okay. seen my my film and my art, my work and said he thought I was a potential and wanted me to keep working on it until I got to the level that they, they want. So you're so getting I, free education, basically, mm -hmm. from Eric Larson. Yes. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I did. And finally, uh, I brought it in. And he said, OK, I think you're ready. And he submitted my my drawings and my uh, my film to the review board. And I got into the training program, uh, which was the, when you were hired there, um, you had uh, a month to do a personal test of anything you want. And they look at that and review it. And if that looks okay, you get another month to do another personal test, animate anything you want. And they look at that also. And if they think it's good enough, then you're hired as a, a full-time employee and you know go through the training to become an in-betweener. Ollie actually when he was getting ready to retire and he asked if I could come in as his assistant and basically take over his animation assignment after he'd retired. Wow. Ollie Johnston. So got, <laughs> wow. Ollie Johnston, wow. yes. So I went in, went in there some drawings, and he would go over my drawings and embarrass the heck out of me because <laughs> <laughs> mine were so crude compared to his. But somehow he still had faith in me. And so I came in and I did um, – he was going to animate the adult copper and chief, the old dog. And so I actually got most of his assignment after that, once he retired. So did you keep I all did. those notes he made on your, I do oh, yeah. I have a, a folder with them. Yeah. It'll be in the book, right? <laughs> well, yeah. You did something in 1980 and mm -hmm. at the time I'd be willing to bet you had no mm -hmm. idea the impact it would have 25, 30 years later, but you purchased a film camera and mm -hmm. you shot behind the scenes footage of the Disney studio. Can you please share yep. that story yeah. and how that footage surfaced? What happened was I, I just bought a eight millimeter sound camera. You could actually take 200 foot reels of eight millimeter film, which was rare even at the time. You normally got 50 foot reels. Uh, but And so it, each each reel would shoot about 10 minutes. So you could do sh about 10 minutes of sound film you could shoot with my new camera. And I was really excited and wanted to try it out and thought, what am I going to do with it? So I thought, oh, I'll just you know shoot around the studio and see what happens. Uh, and um, John Lasseter was working with me at the time. He had just recently graduated from CalArts and was doing uh, was my assistant on Fox and Hound. 
Uh, actually, I didn't give him any in-between right away because I, I knew his abilities, so I gave him some animation to do. He did a lot of the, the baby puppy uh, copper in the thing he animated himself based on a home movie that I filmed of my mom's dog. But, uh, <laughs> and so uh, we went out there in the afternoon and decided, oh, just film, I'll just, just, just let the camera run, don't cut, and it'll be like a little slice of time from now. And didn't think it would be anything special, so I just started it. And as soon as I started, uh, I turn around, and Ron Miller, the president of the company, is walking out of the door right <laughs> behind me. <laughs> and at the time, when you go into the the guard shack in front, had a big sign <clears throat> with a picture of Mickey Mouse holding his hand up saying, no cameras. <laughs> um uh, but I say, yeah, so uh, with Ron Milley there, that's why he looks a little, he was a little suspicious, but he said, what's going on? I said, it's a home movie, just a home movie, which is what it was. And he said, oh, okay. Hi, mom. And he, he walks off. And uh, so then I just went around, went into my room, looked around, went into some other people's rooms and saw what they were doing. Nobody knew I was going to be doing this. And so I just barged into their rooms uh, out of the blue with the cameras. So you saw what it was really like, uh, except for Ed Gombert, one of my best friends at the time. He knew that I was going to be doing this. And so when I barged into his room, he wasn't there. I found out later he was under his desk. He didn't want to be filmed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah but and uh so it became and it was meant to be just a home movie i had one screening at the studio and showed everybody there and <clears throat> it was kind of cool and I, I, and I showed it some friends and uh i gave a copy i i gave the original to the disney archives i figured they had a a better environment for protecting film than i have at my home so i gave it to them there um and then later on made a I got permission to make a digital copy for myself of that. And then a few years ago, actually, Don Hahn, who had seen it at, at the original screening, was doing a documentary about that time period at Disney and uh, asked if I had the footage and wanted to see it. And he incorporated a lot of that into his documentary. And he said it was actually the only footage shot at the time of actual production. They didn't have any or any photographers shooting any of the real production at the time. So he used a lot of my home movie for that documentary. It's one of the cool. best parts of, of Waking Sleeping Beauty mm -hmm. and just seeing those behind the scenes and some of the people you talk to and Tim Burton and obviously John yep. Lasseter and uh, yep. great stuff. Outstanding. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I did it, and I had no idea it would be anything but a home movie. Really. Yeah, well, we're all glad you did it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, and I'm joined by my family. Let's start off with my wife, Jolie. Hi. My son, Evan. Hello. And my daughter, Tara. Hi. And we are coming to you from Galaxy's Edge inside of Disney's Hollywood Studios in Walt Disney World. It's our first day in Walt Disney World, and we're in uh, Hollywood Studios for Moonlight Magic, a Disney Vacation Club member event. And we're just going to go quickly around the room here and talk about our favorite moments so far. It's towards the end of the night, and we'll start with Jolie. 
Um, it's just nice to have uh, DVC events and be able to be in the park when it's not as crowded and get on some rides really quickly and get some get we got a popcorn bucket. It's been fun. We did. We got a couple of uh, popcorn buckets. Evan, how about you? Uh, I've loved Galaxy's Edge at night uh, for one. Uh, Rise of the Resistance was our first attraction. We didn't really get to see it the last time we were here at night, and so seeing it at night is super cool. How about Tara? Um, definitely um, the Tower of Terror was really good, and being able to get on Rise of the Resistance that quickly was nice. Yeah, that was awesome. And now we're hopefully going to walk right on to Smuggler's Run. We're right next to the Millennium Falcon. So maybe you'll hear a little bit of that coming up now, and then we'll talk to you a little bit later. Engineers, automatic repair engaged. All right, here we go. Right, pilot, push the flashing button to take off. Pilot on the left, move your stick to fly right and left. I was just about to say that. Pilot on the right, pull back on the stick to fly out and push forward to fly down. Where am I going? Weapons are online. Dad! Left pilot! Now let's go get that to us, Right pilot! Make the jump to light speed. Oh! everybody we are now in the magic kingdom it is a couple days since we recorded we are in adventureland i am facing uh, where you pick up the dole whips is that uh, sunshine tree terrace that area and we're also right next to aladdin's magic carpet ride and the enchanted tiki room so i want to tell you what we've been doing by the way we're eating dole whips right now it is late uh, it's the last thing we're doing before we heading, we're heading back to our hotel. We were still able to get a ton of rides in while also being able to um, watch the fireworks too. So we were able to fit a whole bunch in for my dad editing. I'm kind of stalling for time because he's taking a photo right now of um, a family leaving. But... Podcast. The Hyperion Hub. Where are you guys from? <laughs> North Carolina. North Carolina. I just took their picture for them. So, hey, congrats. I'm glad you guys had fun. We have one from, where are you from? I'm Alaska, from Alaska. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World? I have before. With okay. With, with her, with yeah. my sister. Okay. That's his awesome. sister. That's great. So, why are you in Alaska? Uh, so, I'm in the Army. And this is our, our block leave. Okay. And so I decided to spend time with the family, come down. <laughs> well, a very special place to be here, yes. Thank you for your service. Hey, thank you, everybody. Make sure you uh, subscribe. Hey, yeah. we got a 10-hour car ride. So I'll download some episodes. We're looking forward to talking with our guest this week, author of the new book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, from Chicago Review Press, Jake 
Friedman joins us. Welcome, Jake. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. I think what helped is that I had this blog called the Babbitt blog that started like 10 years ago or something. And I use that as a place for me to deposit my research and organize my thoughts. And unbeknownst to me, that sort of became kind of popular amongst Disney fans. And people were researching that and like auction houses were using that as research material. Don Hahn used it as research material in his book, citing pages about the art models that were brought into the studio that I had uncovered. And I was just doing it to dive into the story because I was trying to get such a three-dimensional picture of what it was like at the time. I was trying to uncover every nook, every cranny, and really put myself in the shoes of a Disney animator. I found that most books about Disney were like describing Walt Disney. But I thought to myself, I really want to know what it was like to to be there as an employee. I think most people would relate to the employee aspect of it, to be working for someone who you think is great, but uh, what's it like to be there, to walk the halls, to clock in, clock out, and to be in this momentous time when the studio was just exploding with creativity and innovation during the 30s. I was able to find, as far as research is concerned, some really unique sources. So the Babbitt family, his widow opened up her home and all of her records to me. And for about 10 years until she passed away, I would visit her every year in Los Angeles and stay at her house. And it was the last house where Art Babbitt lived. And she kept all of his stuff. And this is stuff going back to I don't know. I found photos from the roaring 20s that he had taken. He had, And he was kind of meticulous about his notes, too. He had a filing cabinet filled with manila folders. Wow. And I was just going through all that stuff. And he had letters and he had a diary and he had home movies that he shot at the Disney studio. Wow. And he had memos and he had audio recordings of his own interviews that he had done. And I really for, you know, I never met him. He died when I was 11 but I really felt I got a chance to kind of get in his head as much as anybody can. And I began to identify with him a little bit. I grew up with a love for Disney, like Disney Channel, classic cartoons, the films, going to Disney World. Like I love both these things. I love unions and I love Disney. I admire people who fight for unions and I admire Walt Disney. And I wanted to make a story that shows how both of these people had their reasons for doing what they were doing. And I hope I succeeded. Oh, absolutely. oh and as far as, as far as research, I almost forgot. I also uncovered two other really cool sources of research. And one was, you know, there, there are troves of research. If you open up a book that's related to something that you are researching, and then you look in the, the, the end notes or the bibliography. And Tom Cito wrote a great book like 16 years ago called Drawing the Line about animation unions. And one chapter was dedicated to the Disney strike. And there was a source in there about um, uh, University of Southern California, Oviat Library. So I went there to the Oviat Library and apparently it has a collection of like original strike memos and bulletins and, and handbills and I found myself reading the very material that the strikers were reading day by day. Wow. Yeah. It's sort of like scrolling through someone's messages, you know, day by day. You, I was I, I suddenly had like a day by day calendar of what strikers were experiencing. 
we are a week away from our big event. It's going to be a Disney day in central Illinois. We are one of the proud sponsors of a screening of The Boys, the Sherman Brothers story at the Peoria Riverfront Museum in Peoria, Illinois. Co-director of the film, Jeffrey Sherman, will be in attendance and will share stories and answer questions about the movie and about his father and uncle. Robert and Richard Sherman, the Sherman brothers who created some of the greatest Disney songs of all time. Later that evening, Jeff will make an appearance at Cornstock Theater in Peoria, Illinois for a performance of Mary Poppins. And our very own Sean Degenhart is music directing that show throughout the summer he sat down and spoke with cast members and the director. So I am here with Kelsey Kratz, our Mary Poppins. Hi, Kelsey. Hello. And Clay Frankel, our Bert. Hello. And we just had our first vocal rehearsal. It is going to be amazing. Kelsey, tell us a little bit about you and why you're excited about this show. Hey, hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm originally from Montgomery, Alabama, a little bit more recently from Ostende, Belgium, but most recently from Decatur, Illinois. I just graduated um, from Millican University and I'm so excited to be playing Mary. It's one of my dream roles. It has so many fun little things and she's got a sense of spunkiness to her that I really like. So this is going to be a great time. And this is our first show together. It so I'm excited about show. that. And Clay, we've done a couple shows together yeah, through the have. years. Cats and Les Mis. Yeah, so many shows and... just blend together. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to keep track. So tell me about Bert. Why do you like Bert? Um, I grew up watching the movie Mary Poppins and as long as I can remember, I was always fascinated with the scenes, Jolly Holiday and Step in Time. And once I saw the stage show as a teenager, I thought Bert would be such a fun role to play. And since then, I've really been trying to work at trying to be a better vocalist, better dancer. And uh, once Chip announced that they were doing Mary Poppins, I thought, okay, this could possibly be the chance for one of my dream roles to come to reality. And here we are. And this is our third time trying to do the show because we originally yeah. it was slated for spring of twenty or summer of twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and then summer of twenty twenty one. And so now Chip Joyce, our director, is here with us. Now we finally get Hi to there. do this. Third time is the charm. <laughs> yeah. Why Mary Poppins, Chip? I've directed a lot of shows through the years, and Mary Poppins is unlike any other show I've directed. I really wanted to direct something that could be highly inclusive where doing things like some of my more recent shows like a chorus line is very specific on casting requirements obviously strong dancers specific um ethnicities things like that i wanted a blank slate where anyone could see that that show got announced and just say oh i could audition for that there's bound to be something i could do in that show uh this is the largest cast i've ever directed and we I, had like over almost 100 people audition. I think the final count was 93. Wow. Um, we would look down to 61 at, at the moment. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was by far my biggest, um, my biggest audition turnout I've ever had. And we've known each other for like 25, 26, 27 yeah, years. At least. And this is our first show actually working together, director, music director. It is. Um, 
the sort of genesis of this came um, in the fall of 2018 when I was playing the Scarecrow in Wizard of Oz and Sean was backstage uh, conducting the pit, I believe. Yep. And um, we got to chatting and he brought up that in all the years we'd known each other, we'd never done a show together. And at that point, the idea for Mary Poppins was starting to kind of work uh, into my brain as, you know, kind of that, that big show I had never done but always wanted to do. And um, most people don't know I'm a huge Disney fan. Um, really? Big, yeah, <laughs> yeah, big, big theme park junkie. And I had never tapped into this part of my personality um, in terms of directing theater. And, you know, the two things I love most probably are Disney theme parks and directing theater. I am here with our uh, Mr. and Mrs. Banks. We just had our first rehearsal with them. Brittany Smile. Hello, Brittany. Hello. And Andrew Harrison. How you doing? I am just thrilled to be working with you guys. Brittany, we've worked together many, many years ago it's when you were in time. high school. <laughs> yes. So I was so excited that you decided to audition. Tell me, guys, why you like Mary Poppins. What was it about that made you want to audition for the show? A couple different reasons. I love the story of a family that comes together and how, how Mary comes and helps uh, them see what's really important. And at the end, you, you see the, the family come together. I also love that it's so well known. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll have lots of kids and families come see it together. And that'll be really special. Favorite song in the show? Um... And Feed the Birds is the correct answer. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I probably would say Feed the Birds. Um, I'm a big melody person, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Andrew, what about you? Well, uh, when I was a kid, I remember going to my grandparents' house a lot, and we would watch Mary Poppins. It was like a routine where we would go, mm -hmm. and we would watch Mary Poppins. It was On VHS? My... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, had, they had taped it off of TV, so we had to fast-forward through the commercials and everything. Did Michael Eisner introduce it? On that? He may have. He may have. It may have been the Sunday night uh -huh. movie. I don't remember. But, um, and uh, my, my grandpa was basically... Bert, in my mind, he mm. had the same figure. He was always just a, just a little goofy, just a little bit. Um, and his whole purpose was to make you smile. So uh, if there was, you know, and I haven't been on stage for almost 10 years. And if there was any show that was going to bring me back, it'd be Mary Poppins. Okay, so I am here with our four lead sweeps, very important characters in Mary Poppins. We have Aaron, Rachel, Ricky, and David. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. So tell me about the lead sweeps. Well, um, we're kind of characters who are always there, either present in the pit or on the trim in the background. We're always kind of there to, and the way I see it is just to kind of... Um, manage a little bit of mischief with everything that's going on in Mary Poppins. So. And you guys have a practical reasoning for being lead sweeps, right, um, throughout kinda, the show? It kind of seems like, not to hype ourselves up, but we kind of keep the magic running, as it were. I mean, sometimes Mary sticks out her hand and a prop just magically appears, and I think we are that magic. You are the magic. <laughs> yes, we facilitate a lot of the, the plot changes and things like that. Yeah, because when you're in the tent, there's not a lot of places for... Scene changes and things like that. No. So you're passing off props and things like that. Right. Moving scenery. Moving yep. scenery, making things happen. Yep. Absolutely. So you guys excited about it? 
Heck oh, yes. Heck yes. And the sweeps, um, Chip has talked about the lead sweeps and the sweeps in general, sort of like the guardian angels that are kind of overseeing the whole show. So it's really, it's really excited. It's very exciting. Okay, so I am here with the choreographers for Mary Poppins, Ginny Morris, and Sydney Abnauer. You guys sound a little out of breath. Why is that? <laughs> well, I'm not because I'm just sitting there watching. <laughs> Sydney, though, is dancing in the show. Yes. And we just spent the last three and a half hours doing Step in Time, the wonderful tap number. So tell me why Mary Poppins? What's special about it? It's a show that I grew up watching, the movie, of course, um, and then I saw the stage version on Broadway about a decade or so ago, and I just fell in love with it. I've been tapping my whole life, and I thought, you know what? I gotta do this. Sydney, what about you? <laughs> yeah, same kind of thing. Grew up watching the movie, saw the stage show, and when Jenny and Chip asked if I would um, co-choreograph with Jenny, I couldn't say no. It's a story I love, and there's lots of super fun dancing, and just not an opportunity I could pass up. What's been the most challenging part of the show? Well, we actually have a lot of people that are new to theater or relatively new. A lot of people that we've never worked with before. So we have a lot of different levels in terms of dance experience. So we are, you know, we have some people in the show who have been dancing for 25 years and some for about 25 days. And uh, so it's a challenge to come up with choreography that makes everybody look good. We want to keep the experienced people challenged and you know doing some interesting things, but we also want the less experienced people to be doing stuff that makes them look good and that they feel comfortable doing. We are in downtown Peoria, Illinois, the home of the beautiful Peoria Riverfront Museum. And we have a special guest today, Jeff Sherman is joining us this time in person. We talked right. with you about a year ago. Thanks for joining us, first of all. Oh, my pleasure. And you were in town to show The Boys, a Sherman Brothers story, a fabulous documentary about your dad and your uncle, the uh, Walt Disney music duo, and they worked for other companies as well. And it's, a, it's one of the best Disney documentaries I've ever seen. For one folks. of, I'm sorry, I had to. <laughs> I'll behave, I promise. For oh. folks who haven't seen the film, uh, why don't you give us a, a synopsis of the movie? Well, my father and uncle, as you mentioned, were uh, principally Walt's in-house songwriters from 1960 till he died in 1966. I'm asking you guys would know better than I would. Um, and uh, then continued writing for them afterward. Uh, they weren't guys that publicized themselves. They weren't like, you know, Burt Backrack or Marvin Hamlish, and you know those names. They weren't really household names. They just liked to work and contribute to things. And my dad and my uncle were getting a little bit older. And I got together with my cousin, who I didn't know very well, which if you see the Boys of Sherman Brothers story, you understand why we didn't really. Uh, but we got together and we wanted to pay tribute to them and connect them to their legacy of a thousand published songs and 50 movie soundtracks and all that stuff because they weren't, they weren't self-publicists, they didn't like to do it. And I also wanted to do it because for myself, my dad, um, I never really thought, even though he did all this stuff, I never thought he really connected with the contribution that he made and, and the legacy that he left. So I wanted in his lifetime for him to see the movie and see all of it together. So that's why Greg and I got together, and my cousin Greg and I got together and made the movie. So working with your cousin, people think, oh, that'd be fun. But you didn't know your cousin. You had this huge shared family history. How was it working with him, getting to know him, 
how your relationship developed through the course and since? Well, a, a, a tough thing to do. Well, the way I, I actually met my cousin, uh, I mean, I knew him. You know, we'd go to screen and I'd see him, hey, how you doing, Greg? But I never sat down, never had lunch with him, never, just because our families were very separate. So at the opening of Chitty uh, in England, I went out, I flew out for like a day to London to see the opening of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at, at the theater there and spend the time with my dad and then I flew back. But that night after the, after the uh, show, they had a, a big party at this, at this club called the In-N-Out Club and it was tons of people. And I, and I there with my dad and he went to bed and so I'm just looking around this party and I see Greg sitting at the bar doing jello shots. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I went, and I walked up to him and I, I sat down and I said, so what happened with our families? What do you know? He went, I'm so glad you came over here and we talked all night. Um, and then uh, it was tough though because a, a tough thing to do is you go I don't really know you that well I've never made anything with you we haven't really produced together we know the same story from slightly different angles but um, you know let's talk about our family dysfunction which is going to be a problem I mean, it's, it's tough so there were parts of times and I, I said I think I, I told you Sean uh, the uh, I, I said to Greg at the very beginning of it, I could see that it could be wrought with a lot of contention. So I said, look, the way we're going to approach this is nobody's a bad guy. Our dads are different. They're not, nobody was wrong. It's not about that. It's about the magic of, you know, to me, the, the soul of this piece was always, it's not unusual for siblings to fight, right? Um, and it's not, especially when they're in business together and in that close proximity. But to be able to do that for 50 years and do all these things together and create this, this body of work is really the, the really cool thing about my dad and uncle. So we got, we got through it. There were times that were tough. Every, every now and then our editor would turn around from the, from, the, from the screen and go, you know, what I'm looking at right here with you two guys is much more interesting than what I'm cutting. You know, we go, no, that's not right. Because we would argue, you know, we'd argue through how we're going to do it. And he had his things with, you know, his mother wanted certain things a certain way, Greg's mom. And, you know, my mom was gone at that point. But, you know, I knew my dad wanted certain things. So we were kind of defending those, those aspects. So occasionally got that way. But Greg and I are in business together now. We've stayed really close. And, and you know, we just moved on from it. Let's give Jeff Sherman another hand. Any questions? Do you have a favorite of their songs? Well, I have a couple. Obviously, Spoonful of Sugar, because I had a little inadvertently had something to do with that. Uh, there's a song in Tom Sawyer called River Song, which is the title song of the movie. And I have to explain, when I went to Beverly Hills High School, and the movie was being shot in Arrow Rock, Missouri, this little town. Um, but Every day, the dailies, the, the daily shooting, every time they would shoot stuff, they would send it back to 20th Century Fox, where the production office was. It was where John Williams was doing the scoring everything. So I got permission to go after school every day and go and watch all this stuff. And one day, my dad said to me, I want you to take off early from school today. I said, what are you going to come on, because we're doing a session. I want you to come for this. And I went down. And uh, Arthur Jacobs, who produced all the Planet of the Apes movies, he was the producer, and he was, he was the one who invited me to come all the time. And so he opened up this box, and he had all these Tom Sawyer t-shirts, so I got the first one, and I put it on. And then they did the session with the opening credits of Tom Sawyer, where Johnny Whitaker's running through Arrow Rock, Missouri, down to the river to see the steamboat. 
and the river song plays at the end of that. And so they recorded that, and then afterward, um, when, the, uh, when the musicians broke for lunch, this fellow walked in from the back of the sound stage, and it was Charlie Pride, the, the big country singer, and Charlie sang the song. And so um, the song is about uh, a little boy growing up, you know, it's about Tom Sawyer. So I had been looking at, I was, I was going to Beverly High, but I wanted to go back east to a prep school, and I had been applying and stuff. And so my dad, after uh, Charlie sang the song, there was a studio photographer there, and he said, hey, Charlie, can you come take a picture of me and my son? So I'm wearing my Tom Sawyer shirt, there's Charlie Pine, there's my dad. And after we took the picture, my dad said, I wrote that song for you. We can finally have a conversation with him, and he's not just sending us an awesome report, a Hyperion Hub correspondent, fresh from the D23 Expo, and a gigantic Disney fan, Joseph Zakshevsky joins us. Thank you so much, Joseph. I love watching and listening to you guys each and every week. I mean, it's it's an honor to be with you here and, and to meet you all in person. I know we've uh, communicated a lot through social media, but uh, thanks for having me. Like many of us, it started when we were young and, and little kids. And for me, I was right in that prime sweet spot in the 80s when I was of the age where the second renaissance of Disney animation was really starting to pick up. And that you know began with Little Mermaid and, and moved into the other classics that we've come to know and love, like Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and, and so forth. So that was my early introduction. And then this is from Houston, Texas at that. And when I went to school in a local... Uh, university there kind of growing up with that in my background i became a huge fan of the golden era of hollywood i always liked that that 50s 60s style of of lights and glitz and glamour and studying you know actors and cinema and producing and directing so that's what i actually went to school for and with that said got to really sink my teeth into leonard malton's the disney films printed in the early 1970s and the various editions that came after that and i think once i uh once i really broke that down and, and got to learn some of the the history behind some of our favorite stories and and, and Disney uh, films and TV shows, it was it was from then on. And then when I met my wife later on in my career, moving and broadcasting out on the East Coast, it was her grandma that took it to another level. She was a big Disney collector that uh, that really kind of opened up the floodgates. So now, you know, no holds barred. We have a Disney room in our house that's dedicated to all things Disney that we just like to you know spread a little magic whenever we need a, whenever we need that little boost throughout the middle of the week. Let's talk about Disney's Comic Con, the D twenty three Expo. You've been there before, and how did this one compare to the last one you went to? The last one back in twenty nineteen was another three day event that was was great. It was our first full expo. We went in 2017 when we were living out on the West Coast, my wife and I, and, and we only got to do one day. At that time, we didn't really know what it was. We saw some posters and light advertising for it in the area. And, and once we went and just saw the 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 massiveness that is basically, like you said, the Comic-Con convention for Disney and all things Disney property, we knew we had to go back. And and this year, I think, was was even more special just because it was the first one since 2019 and, and the pandemic and, and life as we know it happened the way it did. So I think it was it was an excitement across the board for what was to come. It was supposed to happen last summer. We had saved up. We had reserved hotel rooms. We reserved park tickets. We, you know, set aside money to, to purchase D23 tickets when they were available and up for grabs. But unfortunately, that time never came. So we kind of shifted it down a few years. But it was bigger. And and this year's expo was was spread out among all three 
halls of a convention center, the Anaheim Convention Center, as well as taking up the Anaheim Convention Center Arena, which is where Walt Plane resided. And then it took up the second and third floors as well. And that's where you had additional shopping uh, stages for different uh, parts of the company, like the archives or the Hyperion stage or anything like that. And and even the third floor had even more breakout rooms and, and sessions to meet with people, whether it was you know costume design and cosplaying, uh, artist alley and getting to meet some of your favorite Disney animators to, you know, the properties that Disney, you know, partakes in like Pixar had its own segment and Lucasfilm had its own section and Martin Marvel along with Hulu, ESPN plus ABC. So all the Disney properties well represented and they had a lot to break up uh, and, and dive into. And then of course the biggest place of all was the D 23 arena, which was another massive expansion of the convention center for itself in a totally separate area. And that's where all the big panels were. Like all those properties, as mentioned, the Disney Parks panel occurred in there, too, and uh, the opening ceremony and Disney Legends ceremony. So for a convention that hasn't happened in quite some time, I mean, it, it came back with, uh, with uh, even more than what we saw in 2019. So we are thrilled to welcome to the Hyperion Hub uh, the esteemed, award-winning musician, author, educator, speaker, consultant, Founding Director of Regeneration and Voices of Liberty, um, Mousker winner, and ordained pastor, Derek Johnson. Derek, so glad to have you. Man, I'm so glad to be here with you guys. Thank you. From the first day on, it was Voices was voted the number one in the daily show of anything at Disney property. We had just finished our last set uh, of that first day, and there was a couple, young couple, I'm probably 35, I got 34, 35 or so, standing, leaning against, she's leaning against, uh, you know, he's leaning against the pillar. She's kind of leaning against him. He's a big guy, not fat, just football big. <clears throat> and everybody pretty well left. And we, I, I had written it even at the very beginning in my contract with the singers that you, we walk forward, we're a meet and greet. That's nothing Disney never didn't believe in meet and greet. If you're in the wardrobe, Nobody, nobody can touch you, you know. Well, but our things, even with Regen, we come off the stage in front of the castle and mingle with people. I mean, that's what we do. So we were still had greeted some people, and this lady and gentleman were still standing there. And she left. Front. Most people are gone. She came up to me. Pete came in behind her. He didn't come to me. She said, "I just want you to know that was wonderful." My dad would like. What you have done here tonight better than anything else that we saw today. This would be his favorite. I said, well, I'm so glad. She's got some sweet old daddy. She walks away. And one of the operation people, you know who that was? I said, well, I idea. That's Diane Disney. Yes. She talks about her dad. She's talking about Walt. Wow. Oh. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And I was to an archivist just the other, the other day. And he said, "We uh, we have that. We've got that video, a video of her on that day when she's she's breaking down what they saw, and she mentioned the Voices of Liberty being the best thing there was." I said, "Send me a copy of that." So, <laughs> right. but yeah. So that was very from the very first day. It was really quite amazing. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Degenhardt. Welcome. welcome. And John Rudling Schaefer. Hi there. And we have a host, a guest, 
host. Ooh, I see what you <laughs> did there. <laughs> he is mortal, but he's not foolish. Jeff Bam joins us. Hello, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're happy to welcome him back. He's the best-selling author of the unauthorized story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion. He's the co-host of the Doom Buggies Spook Show and the creator of DoomBuggies.com, celebrating a milestone. Jeff, thanks again for joining us. This is wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Doom Buggies is 25 years old this Halloween. Let's go back. So do the math. That's 1997. Yep. And what was happening in 1997? The internet was pretty much brand new. So what made you decide to want to build a website and dedicate it to the Haunted Mansion. Let's go back to the very beginning. I've told this story in a simple way before that's not maybe 100% true. I mean, I used to say, oh, I needed to learn how to make websites. I'm a graphic designer, so I just chose, you know, the Haunted Mansion because I was a big fan of it. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of truth. I mean, that actually essentially is the true story, but... I was really a big news groups guy back in the 90s. Um, Usenet was, you know, the first social media, I guess. And, you know, everyone would post to a community bulletin board. And it was just like the world opened up. And um, in tandem with Usenet, I mean, Usenet is where my Haunted Mansion fandom really kind of crystallized. I'd always been a fan. Um, when I was a little kid, I had the record. And I, I mean, I never stopped being a Haunted Mansion fan from as early as I can remember. In fact, it's from my wife and I were digging through a bunch of junk in my parents' house and we found these these little drawings I had made of the Haunted Mansion from when I was six years old. Just little like I was obviously copying the record pictures but and making up my own story. So I you know, I it obviously hit me in a in a really kind of a dramatic way. I had graduated from design school without needing to take a single computer course at all. I think I graduated in ninety three I think 92 from San Jose State's uh, School of Design. And there was like, I didn't take a single computer class. Um, I still had to order typography to, for my projects from a typesetter. It, it, but, but like, I could see out of the corner of my eye, because <laughs> I live in the Silicon Valley, you know, and Apple was happening. And I could see, um, you know, this is something I really have to get my hands around because I'm going to get this is part of my job now. So, so it is true. I kind of did do muggies partly because it was bubbling up in my heart with all the Usenet stuff, but also partly because I just needed to know how to make a website. No one taught me in college, so I had to learn myself. So that's basically where it came from. It's a great way to spend a few hours if you just, you know, don't have anything to do and want to have yourself a spooky little night, grab a cup of coffee, open up doombuggies.com and, you know, it'll be three hours later and you will have read five or six articles and looked at some, you know, learned something new about the Haunted Mansion. I even, I got to tell you, over 25 years, I even keep like remembering things that I had posted decades ago. And I, you know, I forgot about that. I, that's right. Some Imagineer told me some little thing and I put it on there. And then over the years, I've kind of made my own narrative of the Haunted Mansion. And I kind of still, even with my own website, kind of remembering and discovering little tiny things that I even forgot I had put on there. So there's a wealth of Haunted Mansion information there. Um, if you're interested in digging it up, doombuggies.com is, you know, there. I see what you did Very there. Very clever. <laughs> uh, so 25 years, talk about some of your favorite moments. I know it, it, it's tough to think about uh, all everything, but if you could zero in on a few things. Yeah, um, well, for sure, um, when Walt Disney Pictures started developing the Haunted Mansion, um, 
I remember, I remember, I think it was 2001, maybe the end of 2001. We got this interesting email from someone who was just looking for reference. Did we have any photos, close up photos of the hitchhiking ghosts? And it was a Disney.com email address. So it was someone from Disney, but, um, they, you know, it was no one that shared their role or position. And rumors had already been shooting around that there's going to be a movie about the Haunted Mansion. And so, um, you know, I wrote back, yeah, I got stuff like that. You know, does this have anything to do with the Haunted Mansion movie? And then that person just vanished, like never heard from them again. <laughs> so, um, but it didn't take long before five or six months went by early in 2003. Um, they had at the Disney pictures again, similar to what Disneyland did in 1999. They, um, they invited doom buggies up to the set to um see them film see the filming of the haunted mansion and meet don Hahn and rob minkoff and mona may i got to meet and john meyer who was production he had just won an oscar for chicago and he was doing the haunted mansion production design and um who else was there i you know oh i met um hmm who played master gracie i can't even remember his name no it's anyway i i got to meet a couple of the celebrities it was you know it was I was still young enough to be a little starstruck by everything going on with the whole Disney thing. I think they gave us 500 movie tickets to give away. Like it was, you know, a nice big collaboration. They even put some, um, c- content that was unique to doombuggies.com on our website to promote the movie. So it was, um, a super experience just to get to kind of meet the filmmakers and feel and mostly to feel like we were a little part of something um actual like john meyer he told me oh yeah we play we go to your sound page and we just sit here and like click all the sounds just to kind of you know keep the vibe going when we're working on the production design and i thought that was pretty cool um nathaniel parker by the way nathaniel parker yeah so um that was and i remember he told me like what are you doing in my house? Cause we were in the haunted mansion and he's walking down the stairs and I said, I'm just here for a quick visit. He's like, well, can you take your shoes off or something? It was, he was in his, keeping his accent going. Like he must've been, you know, sh- shooting soon. So it was pretty cool. Well, we are thrilled to welcome to the Hyperion hub, um, Disney author and president of the Hyperion historical Alliance, Didier Gez. Welcome Didier. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. You have learned over the years how to really preserve the research and the archives. And I've I've heard you in other interviews. I know that you spend upwards of 10 hours sometimes talking with uh, artists. What got you interested in that side of it? Why, why do you want to tell these stories so badly? I'm just extremely interested in the way all of those masterpieces were created, uh, be they uh, short cartoons, uh, animated features, or theme parks. Um, I think they're a very, very important part of uh, uh, popular culture. Uh, they are definitely a very big part of what I loved when I grew up and what I still love today. Uh, and I thought it was really interest- interesting to preserve the... Uh, the what is basically art history um in this case uh, popular art history uh and so the best way to do that would be to get the uh the stories from uh, from the artists themselves and and to preserve those for future generations disney is a hundred year old company 
uh, and they've done a great job of archiving their history and their past. But just by you describing opening boxes that haven't been opened in 40, 50 years, writing a book about uh, Walt's true life adventures and finding diaries and, and different articles and, and pieces that, that have not surfaced, sometimes I get this, the sense that we haven't scratched the surface on so many pieces of history for Disney. Do you feel that way? Oh, I absolutely feel that way. Uh, and I'll give you uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, some of the, um, the the future monographs I'm I'm working on at the moment uh, include a, a monograph on the the, um, the trip to Latin America in 1941 uh, of Walt Disney and his artists uh, in collaboration with uh, J. D. Kaufman and and Ted Thomas, uh, who both have done already some work in the past on that specific subject. But what we realized is that by pulling all resources together, uh, we could dig a lot deeper in, in that subject and, and for the very first time uh, present an account of the trip, which is a day-by-day account fully illustrated by 240 photographs, uh, most of which have never been seen before. Wow. Uh, and so we have, we have the, the possibility of being with Walt and his artists uh, on the trip and following them step-by-step. And, and it relies on correspondence, it relies on diaries, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's one thing that, yes, we, we, there had they had been work done on that subject before, but we're going a lot deeper on, on the subject. But I'll give you another example, which goes even further. So talk about Mickey Mouse and the 1930s. Uh, you're like, okay, Mickey Mouse, the most famous of all of Disney's characters, and the 1930s, the golden age of Disney animation. You would think that by now, everything would have been written about those two subjects. Uh, and especially if I tell you Mickey Mouse in the 1930s, you'll tell me, well, everything has been said about that. <laughs> well, it is so not true that uh, by starting to research with, with a friend of mine called Libby Stats, um, a project called Mickey Mouse, on stage and on radio in the 1930s, I realized that there was so much to learn, so much that had not been written about this and not researched about this, and so many new illustrations and photographs that I needed not one volume, but two volumes to tell the full story. And and those two volumes, each of which is going to be about 200 pages long mm. uh, and fully illustrated, um, between the, those two volumes uh, and, and those 400 pages of, of, um, uh, of information and close to 400 illustrations, uh, what is amazing is that 95% of the information and 95% of the illustrations uh, will be presented in those two volumes for the very first time. Uh, we learned so much and we accessed documents that had literally never been accessed by any Disney historian in the past. Uh, correspondence with Walt, uh, correspondence with some of his artists, uh, correspondence with people who, who had uh, worked on early um, radio shows for, for Disney that in the end uh, weren't produced. Um, just an insane amount of information and of photographs, photographs of parades, all around the U.S., 
official parade with Mickey Mouse floats that no one had seen before. He's the host of the YouTube page Adventures by Carney. Welcome Pete Carney to the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So awesome. Oh, am I not supposed to cheer for myself? Oh, you're good. No, we'll, we'll dub over the soundtrack of the applause and everything after that. Yeah. I'm going to use those sound effects for a future guest as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this past July, I was in Baseline Tap House outside of Galaxy's Edge inside uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios and Walt Disney World, and there was a downpour. The rain was coming in sideways, and my family was kind of spread out all over the park, and because it was raining, I decided to stay in Baseline Tap House for a little while. And over in the corner, I noticed Pete and his family were live streaming and they were kind of waiting out the rain. So I walked over to find out more about uh, his live stream and his channel and ended up on the live stream. So we yeah. had we had to bring you on for this show, Pete, uh, to learn more about you and your channel for folks who haven't seen it yet, please describe it for us. So uh, it's Adventures by Carney, right? Which is pretty broad because we do a lot of fun stuff. And I didn't want to just do just Disney. Um, but we are heavily concentrated in the, the Disney parks. Uh, but we do, uh, obviously, I live in Florida now. I live in the Orlando area. So we do a lot of Universal, a lot of SeaWorld. Uh, we're getting invited to more and more press things, uh, whether it's Gatorland, Gaylord Palms, there's a lot, especially during the holidays here. Uh, very fortunate where our names are starting to get thrown around. We're getting invited to a lot of stuff. Uh, but also just traveling. I love to travel. We do weekend road trips. Um, a lot of the time it's my girlfriend and I. Um, we do a quick little recap of a weekend or a four-day trip. Um, we also are big fans of craft beer. We do a lot of brewery hopping. But anything we do which we think would be fun and interesting uh, we pretty much put it out there. And my inspiration was, I used to watch all these YouTube videos and vloggers and vloggers and news channels. And there's so many different pockets and, and uh, little rabbit holes you can go down. But I loved it. And there were certain channels where I was like, ah, it's okay, I watched a few and moved on. But the people I liked, they were always trying to find new things. And I, you know, I just, I felt like I became friends with those people on the screen. And I was like, man, that would be so cool to be able to do that for others one day. And that's back when I was living uh, in New York on Long Island. So. Yeah, we moved down here uh, in August of 2019, and it's kind of, and then COVID hit. I didn't have the YouTube channel then, and then that's where the magic started to happen. I was an on-air personality for WWNT, the news site. Um, I still help them out from time to time. Um, it's weird because people have a love-hate relationship with them, but I've been a panelist on a lot of their shows since 2017. So I was already working for them. They were moving studios down here so, so I could work for them part-time. And I was at one of their events, and someone came up to me, and they said, hey, we saw you do stand-up comedy in New York. Do you do stand-up comedy? And I used to do stand-up comedy in New York uh, back in 2018. I won the best new stand-up comic in New York City, which was really cool. And I said, yeah, I said I did it, and that was kind of my peak. Uh, I didn't think I was going to go any higher than that, so I left on top. <laughs> so he came up to me, and he said, you got to be on YouTube. And I was like, I don't know, but I don't know technology. I don't know how to edit. I don't know how to do any of these things. He's like, you tell me your vision of what you would like. I can help make that happen. You just turn the camera on and go. And uh, yeah, he was a very nice guy. Set up the whole page. I knew I wanted ABC. I knew I wanted Adventures by Carney. Adventures with Carney sounds more fun, but I needed something that would be catchy. Um, just from my marketing background, uh, ABC is nice and easy to remember. Also, when you sort your YouTube videos, a and your subscriptions is always on top. So I was like, I want people to be able to see my channel first. So there's a little bit of thought behind that. But 
I still wasn't sure what I was going to do with the channel. I just had a, 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 a jumping off point. And we kind of didn't do anything with it for the first year and a half. And then things got serious in the last 18 months. What motivates you to go live? So I was doing some lives for other channels um, that were paying me just to go live. And it was nice. And they were, they were taking care of me. But we were bringing in big numbers. I mean, I grew one channel pretty quickly to 100K. And it was most of the time was those those subscribers were coming during live videos because I think they just like the spontaneity of it where, I don't know, I, I grew up in the theater. I did end up doing, uh, I did a lot of improv comedy and I ended up doing stand-up comedy for a little bit. Um, I host a lot of events. I went to school for public speaking. So the, the live streams, people just come in. We, we just have fun. We keep it real. I think it is that spontaneity because there's times where I might just be just me and the camera talking and giving some fun facts around the parks or we're at an event. There's some drinks flowing. I end up break dancing or doing cartwheels. <laughs> I think you don't know what you're going to get. Um, and I try to keep it everything family friendly, even if we are drinking. Um, we don't curse on the channel. Uh, definitely not intentionally. It, sometimes it slips one out of 40 streams. Um, we try to do fun adult things, but also I like to show you what you can do with the kids or the nieces and nephews and, and everything else too. You said people, uh, you know, love being cared for and loved. And I think part of building that community, especially with the live events, you know, they feel like they're part of it and you make them feel that way. And, you know, you could be anywhere, you know, across the United States and still engaging people and making them feel loved. And so just that set in the Disney background, you know, I think it's just a winning combination. That's a great point. And, uh, Something I never really thought about, but that's that's very kind of you to say because it means a lot to me. So thank you. John Shaw. That's all I ever really want. I grew up a nerd who got beat up. You know, uh, I, I grew up not in the best circumstances. So for me, I just want everyone to feel loved and appreciated. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care your background, any orientation, whatever you are, whatever you do. I just feel like the whole world would be a better place if we all just took a minute and said, hey, we're all just human beings. Let's just love and care about each other, and then let's figure some stuff out. Because we're so much better together than we are apart. And I feel like a lot of that, it was the Disney mentality. And it's just about being a team player. And it's like being a team player um, in the human race, I guess. I don't know. And I always end every single one of my streams with, please be kind to one another. You know, and that's it. Just because that's what it's all about, right? Like people, and I think a lot of my... People who watch, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of people who watch who I don't even know who they are, and I don't mind. I, it's so much fun to just think about who these random people are around the world. But my message is always like, everyone's welcome, right? And just be, if just if I can bring you a little bit of happiness, get you out of your office for a half an hour, show you some ridiculous fun facts at the Magic Kingdom, or go do cartwheels over here, or go feed an alligator, put my head in its mouth, whatever I'm doing, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of that escape. Because the real world is hard, and we should be laughing and smiling and celebrating each other. And I, and that's what I'm big on. That's that's the whole reason for the channel, is just to joy. Because that's what I needed. When I, I was married and went through a very hard divorce, I would watch some of these streamers and blogs and podcasts, and it was my escape. It, 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 it made me, just, it gave me hope in humanity and society. So, I don't know. I try to hold a little bit of that with me in, in what I do as well. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. thank you for sharing that passion for you know bringing us on your adventures, uh, not only in Disney but wherever you travel. There, it's a fun channel to watch, 
you know, as much as you go to Disney and you probably see some meltdowns from families and things like that, um, and you probably see some not so nice guests to some of the cast members, just reminding everybody to be kind. I think that's uh, a perfect message. Yeah, I mean, we all have good and bad days. And, uh, you know, sometimes even people in the chat would be like, well, that cast member was rude or that person was rude. And I'm like, hey, listen, you don't know what they went through this morning. You don't know the phone call they got from their mother or their father or from their sister or their brother or what they have going on behind closed doors. Everybody has a story on this entire planet. Let If we all just took a step back and gave everybody a little bit of room. I mean, again, sometimes you see something rude. Don't get me wrong. I'm in the parks. Sometimes I want to step in and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> But for the most part, the I New York we, comes you know, out those are the extremes. <laughs> I just think we just remember that everyone's got stuff going on. Why don't we just smile and have some fun together? We could all commit, you know, we could all make, you know, talk right now. If we went out of the room about like something that's really hard in our lives right now. Mm-hmm. We can go around. We'd all have something. It's just like, hey, that is the that is the, the bond we have in the human race. It's how do we help each other out? How do we move forward? Wonderfully said by Pete Carney. How do we move forward? Well, one way is through laughter. And now it's time for our blooper moments from this past season. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois. Is that how we start? Yeah, that's how we start, right? (laughs) Let's try it again. Please leave that in. Please leave that in. We'll hear that one in December. Yeah, please leave that in. Is that how we start this? All right, here we go. Do they usually have a big name sports personality? Not typically, but I welcome it, of course. Right. That sounded like Input. the AI yeah. response. I was going to say, Not did I just say Siri or John? I, I really like sports. <laughs> All right, take your uh, massive briefs with you. John, you're used to all these, aren't you? Is he saying I wear massive briefs? I'm very confused. What's going on? I can't remember. It's audio. You know, you're make I mean, I'm sitting, I'm, si- I'm sitting low Bye, enough. You can't see, right? I just, goodbye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hyperion Hub. Do it again. Hello, everyone. You're John Alois. So I think that's great. Nice wish, Dan. Uh, Dan. <laughs> Dan? How this is far I <laughs> Who's Dan? I thought I was your favorite. You didn't, I didn't even make the list, so don't even start there. All right. Way to kick us off, Sean. <laughs> way to go, Dan. <laughs> Hold on. Do you... Sorry. Let's pause for one second. You can't hear. It's fine. First and foremost... I'm, I apologize for being late. I had multiple oh, children sorry. with multiple events. <laughs> he had multiple children today. Yeah, that's what they were saying. Yeah. Actually, it seems like they yep, do yep. multiply without, without me even knowing. So what are your Disney wishes? No. Yeah, sure. So what are... Would you be quiet? <laughs> Email us at podcast at com. Whether you're listening to us... No. Or not. Wherever you're listening... <laughs> This time of year, we have a gift. So macaroons is a marshmallow dessert, and there's macaron, which is the cookie at Epcot. Which is this? It's the sandwich. <clears throat> right, that's a macaron. Okay. All right. The, All right. the French president. All right, I'll Close. say macaron. <laughs> Macaroon is a whipped 
Okay. Marshmallow Thank dessert. You. It's yes, good. yes. I'm trying to instill Thank some class. Right. Thank you. I, I appreciate okay. that. Thank you. Shut up. Okay. All right. <laughs> we like to start things off with our Disney views. I'm going to kick it over to Sean. Epcot is celebrating. Oh, I'm sorry, John. Kemp oh, King. <laughs> Gloves are off. Let's he do it. He was so offended. <laughs> so they're going on an adventure together, and John. Is it Rise Davies? It's Redling Schaefer. <laughs> Sean and I were on a sea kelp. Sea kelp? That sounds like a fascinating show the about, about the Mediterranean talk? life and the diets of ancient Greece. Sea kelp premiering on National Geographic and streaming on Disney+. Plus. Not really. Before we close out the show, I just want to say a personal thank you. First off to... All of our subscribers, our listeners, thank you so much for joining us every week. Uh, to our families who allow us to, to do this. And of course, I have to say a special thank you to Sean Dagenhart and John Redling Schaefer, who I'm sure it's therapy for all of us at times. We're pulled in so many different directions. When we can sit down at the table and share our passion for Disney and just kind of brighten each other's uh, day or week, um, it's truly a wonderful gift to be able to do this with them. And I can't thank them enough. Well, I'm excited for 2023. We will have many incredible guests and more stories to share with you. I'm going to dedicate this this uh, episode to my brother-in-law, Spencer. I love you, buddy. He passed away back in 2018. And I uh, think about him all the time, mainly because of his wonderful message of being, being a light in this, in this world. Uh, Shine Like Spencer is a hashtag. Go look it up. He has a tremendous story. Taking a page from his book, I'm going to say to close out this year and moving into 2023, shine, shine for your family, shine for your friends. Be kind. If you see somebody's down, throw them a smile, shine with your gifts and be a bright light. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. If you celebrate the season, I hope you're surrounded by loved ones until next month or next year. Thanks for listening to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Thank you.